Preachers and pastors are often in an interesting position when it comes to expectations. You know, if you're checking out a church, maybe you wonder and think and desire, you know, is he nice? But not too nice. Did he greet people before and after the service? Is he friendly, but not too friendly? Is he presentable, you know, put together, but not too put together? Is he compassionate? Of course, we need him to be holy, but not too holy. Respectable, but not worldly. And when it comes to sitting through his sermons, are his sermons easy to listen to, but informative at the same time? Does he grab our attention? Well, not being overly dramatic. Is he prepared, but not too reedy? Funny, but not a comedian. And of course, is he relevant enough? And then is the sermon short enough? Amidst all the expectations that could be, it's important to ask the question, what exactly is the, the pastor's primary task in the church? What exactly is the pastor's primary task in the church? From our passage today, we have an answer, actually. It is to preach the word. It is to preach the word. That's our main point uh, from today's passage, main point for the sermon. The primary task of the pastor is to preach the word. Please join me in turning to 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 can be found on page 996 of the Bibles, the Black Bibles, uh, there on the chairs. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, we are in verses 1 to 5. This here, 2 Timothy, is the Apostle Paul's last letter in Scripture. He is maybe months away even to being executed. And as we'll see in uh, the next passage there, at the end of uh, at least uh, verses 6 to 8, he, he's aware that his execution, it seems, is going to come. That his life is coming to an end. He has finished his race. And here he is penning this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. Paul is in jail, finishing up his race. He's writing this letter to encourage his young son in the faith, Pastor Timothy, in the city of Ephesus, a coastal city in modern-day Turkey. He writes here encouraging Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And here in our passage, he wraps up his encouragements to Timothy about his ministry. And he charges him in this climactic way, in a climactic way, to preach the word. Fulfill your ministry. Look there, I'll go ahead and read. Um, let's go ahead and let's start in 310. And I'll go to 48. 310 to 48. Paul says there, you, however, contrasting. Timothy with the false teachers. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, this is our section, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's look first, which is our main point here. The pastor's primary responsibility is to preach the word. It is to preach the word. Point number two is going to be why. But right now we look at the pastor's primary responsibility is to preach the word. Look again at one and two there. And he says, I charge you, and then you can skip to verse two, Preach the word. It's helpful to understand the logical flow from what he wrote previously and how he actually gets logically to what he says today. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says that that false teachers of corrupt character, they're going to come in, they're going to disrupt the church and lead others astray. But then Paul turns to Timothy and addresses him as the man of God. But he says, you personally, you, look there at 310, you. Instead of following after falsehoods and living a life conning people like they did, we know that the false teachers there wanted to line their pockets by preying on the poor and the vulnerable, the easily swayed. We know that from 1 Timothy. He says that instead of being like them, you have followed me. That is, a true apostle of Jesus Christ entrusted with the gospel. Chosen to lay the foundation of the church. You have followed me. And then in 3.14 he says, continue in it. In the teaching. What you have learned and firmly believe, that is, the word of God, the sacred writings fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Why continue? Why is he to continue doing this? Verse 15 there. They are able to make you wise unto salvation. You see the sufficiency of scripture. It is enough. We don't have to look elsewhere. It makes you wise unto salvation. And then you look there at 16 and 70, some of the most important verses about scripture, found in scripture. It says in 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the sufficiency of scripture. Able to make Christians wise into salvation, teaches us about salvation, shows us the way to salvation, and also equips the Christian to persevere until final salvation. Christ appears and establishes once and for all his kingdom. It's all about the sufficiency of the word of God. But then in our passage today, we see that the word is not only sufficient for Timothy in his private life, right? This is what you are to do. You continue. But it is sufficient for the life of the church. 
in the life of the church. Not only is Timothy to depend on the word, but I mean, so is the congregation, right? That's why he tells, that's why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word to the congregation. Because it is sufficient for salvation and to equip the man of God, that is all of us as individuals, the congregation as a whole, to know how to act for Jesus Christ, to live in this life. This task of preaching or heralding the, heralding the word is, is inherent to Timothy's calling as a pastor and shepherd of God's people. The teaching of the word of God, the preaching or the heralding of the word is inherent to Timothy's call as a pastor and shepherd of God's people. This theme runs throughout the whole entire book. It runs throughout the letter and then again climaxes in our passage. Go ahead and look over to 1.8. Go ahead and look over to 1.8, chapter 1, verse 8. He says there, right, don't be ashamed about the testimony, the gospel of the Lord. Keep in mind, he knows where he's going, right? He's know, he knows he's going to get to preach the word. But already you see him getting to it, right? Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then you look at 1.14. He says there, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That is the gospel. In 2.2, he says, entrust the gospel to faithful men who will go on and teach other people to do the same. In 2.15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a man who has stood the test and is faithful, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Like a trailblazer cutting the path, he's supposed to lay it down straight, cut the path straight so that others would know, know how and see the way of salvation. And then here again in his last word to Timothy concerning his ministry in public, he officially charges him, preach the word. It says there in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, or when it is convenient and when it's inconvenient, whether for you or the congregation, whether you think it's convenient at the particular time or inconvenient, whether the congregation thinks it's convenient or inconvenient. We'll see how that uh, plays in as we move on here. Uh, there are different Greek words used to describe this activity of preaching. The one he uses here is unique. It means to herald. It means to herald. That is, to stand and make this official declaration, a public announcement. That is, to declare aloud the truth of God, the word of God. That's what he's talking about here. What, what, is, what is he to declare aloud? It is the scriptures and their fulfillment in Christ and his gospel. So when you read the word, right, the word, preach the word, that's, where, that's what we're supposed to think. The scriptures and they're all of their full gospel. Same with all the other words he used there as synonyms. He talks about the sacred writings. He speaks about the scripture. He speaks about, in 4.4, the truth. In 1.14, the good deposit. All those are synonyms for the scripture and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, as we look on this side of the cross, having God's word given to us by his sovereign providence, this is the scriptures, and they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophesies about Jesus. New Testament records how his prophecies are fulfilled. Promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This scripture, obviously, what he is to herald, is all about the gospel of Jesus. It speaks about the fact that salvation is for all who call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. That's that good news that he is to stand and supposed to herald until the coming of Jesus Christ. That's how he is supposed to be a faithful servant of God, a faithful soldier of God with eyes 
that seek to please the Lord. Of course, this gospel states that those who have rebelled against God can now find reconciliation with God all through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are the ones who had rebelled against the Creator, our Creator, and earned for ourselves just condemnation. But now in Jesus Christ, we have freedom. There is pardon, there is forgiveness for all those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who live the righteous life we should have. That was demanded of us, right? We rebelled against God. Still, God's law is upon us. Jesus Christ knows we cannot do this. God knows we can't do this. So he sends Jesus to live the life we should have. And then he dies on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve on account of our sin. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving to everybody now that the death sentence no longer stands over those or is held over those who have sinned against God and repented of their sins and believed upon him. It's a wonderful gospel that we preach, that Christians everywhere are to preach, that Paul was preaching and that Timothy was preaching and all Christian pastors are to preach. Why is it that we do this? It's because Jesus Christ wants his people to know, wants the whole entire world to know that salvation is available for all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, including you, Christ, or Christ, you person who's visiting with us and you just know yourself not to be a Christian. That, that salvation is for you. If you turn from your sin, and believe upon him. You will be forgiven of your sin, justified, that is, declared righteous, even though we are sinners, we can be declared righteous by God and stand in front of him, no longer guilty, or I should say, still guilty, but yet forgiven. We are sinners, but yet we are declared righteous, and even though we are guilty, we are forgiven of our sin made one with God, all through the blood of Jesus Christ, where we should have died. Jesus Christ bears the wrath and the sin that his people deserve, and he dies for them, all because he loves us. This is the gospel that every Christian is to preach, and I pray that this is what we at First Baptist Church preach, what we herald, the gospel of Jesus Christ from all of scriptures. We want to be guided by the whole counsel of God, being governed by his word and his will. So we preach the scriptures. This is why we preach the way we do. So whether we are in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we want to make sure that God's word is governing us. and All of it. Whether we are in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And, and the way that this works is, right, we take a passage of scripture, and then we want to make sure that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. This is a definition for expositional preaching. We want to make sure that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. This is the definition of expositional preaching. There's different kinds of preaching. Another kind of preaching is like topical preaching. It's not necessarily bad. We have, in fact, done it here occasionally at this church. Uh, but when it comes to the main diet of the church, we want to make sure that it is the word of God, just going like verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and holding forth the message of God, fulfilled in Jesus, to his people. And from it all, we want to speak of Christ. Promise by God in the Old Testament, and then we read of its fulfillment, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the New Testament. Now, I know that some of you guys come from backgrounds where something else was heralded on Sunday mornings at church. Maybe it has been, for you guys in your past, a feel-good message. Maybe in the name of being seeker-sensitive. And the thinking goes, in those types of churches, 
We want our church service to be primarily for non-Christians, primarily for those who don't believe, that is, those seekers, for non-Christians, those who are seeking. And so then to draw them in and keep them coming, we won't talk about the things in the Bible that are hard to swallow. We won't talk about sin or the fact that there is a God over us all and he's going to judge us and that there is, in fact, an eternal hell. We don't talk about those things. Let's not talk about those things lest people be offended and then they stop coming. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? First, we can ask the question, what exactly is the church gathering? Okay, What exactly is the church gathering? Helping, helping us all sort of analyze what exactly what we are to make of this. Question number one is, what exactly is the church gathering? Right? If some churches are tailoring their service primarily for the non-Christian, what do we make of it? What does the Bible make of it? It's interesting, according to the word of God, that is actually not what the church gathering is for. Okay, I'm not talking about how we are to love the visitor. If you're visiting with us, I'm glad you're visiting. I hope you, I hope you know that we love you. Happy to talk to you. Uh, happy to hang out. Happy to grab, grab a coffee with you guys, talk. Like, but, but according to the Bible, right, what is the nature of this church gathering? The church, by definition, is God's people born again by the Spirit, worshipers of Jesus Christ. And so when the church gathers in the New Testament, we see that it is, in fact, God's people who are gathering for the task of worshiping God and then their own edification in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 14. God's people gather together. It is the church gathering. People who are born again, they are going to gather Sunday after Sunday on the Lord's Day for their edification in the preaching of the Word of God. But here's the deal, though. Though God calls His people to gather, the New Testament tells us that non-Christians were present in the New, in, in New Testament church gathering. Isn't that interesting? 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 25. And then Paul there, writing to the church at Corinth, he's writing to them, making sure that they are aware that people who don't believe are going to be in your church services. And he wants the church in Corinth to make sure that those people know what is the message of salvation. Crystal clear. Basically talking about, like, don't confuse them. Be really clear what it is. And you see that those facts actually inform our very own practice, those two facts. What is the nature of the church? The church, at least when it comes to the church gathering, it is God's people born again who gather together for the purpose of worship and their edification in the word in Jesus Christ. And then number two, we see that there are non-Christians in the New Testament church gathering. So those two facts inform our church practice. So in our church, our, our aim is for our church to worship God and for the church to be built up, especially through the preaching of the word of God. You guys know that the preaching in the preaching of the word of God, that in and of itself is worship. Uh, this one pastor that I listened to over this past week, John Piper, he put it really well. He says, like, you know, he he refuses, as the leader of the church there, or the church he used to pastor, he would he would make sure that the people doing the music were never referred to as like worship leaders, as if what these people do is worship, but what this here, when this goes on, is not worship. He says, how, how can we not consider the preaching of the, the word of God worship when the king gives us exactly what we are to herald when we herald his truth and make much of him, that is worship. Certainly along with this. Certainly when Oscar is praying. Certainly when Oscar is reading the word. All these things 
are elements of worship, especially the preaching of the word of God. But at the same time, we know that those who don't believe in Jesus Christ are going to come and check us out. Great. So if you're visiting, right, we want to make sure that you understand the way of salvation. That's how we can love you best. So in our sermons, we address the seeker in the sermon, like I already have. If you're visiting with us, etc., etc. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, etc., etc. You know that I'll ask people who are exploring Christianity to talk to me in the back, and we'll hook you up with other people, study the Bible one-on-one, talk to the friend who brought you, things like this. And so we think it is our responsibility that we love you best by helping you understand how this passage of the Bible that we're going to talk about applies not only to Christians, but then also to one who doesn't believe. That's the first thing we can ask here. What exactly is the church gathering? As we think through, what do we make of the of churches who who, who tailor make their services for non-Christians? The second thing is that covering over truths that God has given us is not helpful. Covering over truths that God has given us is not helpful. So think of those who who let's say water down the message or who remove what is what might what some people might find difficult to understand or even grasp in that moment. Covering over truths that God himself has given us is actually not helpful. The best and most helpful way to love those who are exploring Christianity is to be really clear as to what it is. Um, Why would I want to cover over a problem, right? The sinful condition of man, God's judgment, eternal hell, because he is a righteous God after all. Because if the problem is never brought to light, if the problem is never exposed, how exactly does one ever get to the right solution? How does anyone ever actually appreciate the right solution for what it is unless the problem was clearly explained? It is not good, right? Think about daily practical examples. It is not good, not helpful for your mechanic, for example, to hide the bad news of your car's biggest problem. It is not good and not helpful for a house inspector to come to your house that you have paid him for to tell you and pretend that your foundation is not sinking into the ground. It is not helpful for your doctor to tell you or to to hide from you your systemic problem that's going on. So you can wrap up your life in um, the way that you need to. The same is true for Christians and preachers especially. We are doctors of the soul. And so we want to tell you, we want to reveal God's truth for everybody so that we therefore can can appreciate and come to hear and know his very own solution to the problem. That is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of everybody who would turn from their sin and believe upon him. And the way God desires his people to help, especially his under-shepherds, that is elders or pastors, we have four pastors here, myself, Jason Barris, David Ng, Oscar Vasquez. But the way that God desires his preachers, his pastors to help, is to preach the word and its contents, in season and out of season, whether we think it's convenient or inconvenient, whether you think it is convenient or inconvenient. Even where it might be hard to hear about sin and judgment, it is nevertheless loving to hold that truth out to the seeker so that we therefore can see Jesus Christ. When we understand the curse of sin, we come to appreciate Christ the Savior. What is Timothy's primary primary responsibility? It is to preach the word and all of his contents. Let's look, look 
now at uh, point number two, why? Point number two, why? Why is the pastor's primary responsibility to preach the word? Let's look first. Reason number one. The pastor is to preach the word because the Lord wants his word preached. Really simple. The pastor is to preach the word because the Lord wants his word preached. This is all implied in verse number one, which is actually really serious. You look at what he look at everything he says before he charges Timothy to preach the word. He wants to know exactly. He wants Timothy to know why exactly he is to preach the word. You look there at four one. I charge you is super official, right? Very official. An official charge by an apostle of Jesus Christ. I charge you. Look at everything else he says. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. You see how just how, how official this is, right? Before whose eyes does he charge Timothy? Before whose eyes he says are God and Christ Jesus. I mean, here it's like he's saying, make no mistake that God himself and his eternal son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Yahweh, Lord of the church, creator of the universe, power and authority over everything. That God is watching you. This is a big deal. Even as Paul himself is writing this to Timothy, who entrusted the gospel to Paul? It was Jesus Christ. And now that Timothy is saved, now that he has received, received that same trust, that same treasure, now that he's been called into the ministry and charged to guard the good deposit, to rightly handle the word of God, to preach the, preach the word, he is to guard that same trust and treasure under the eyes and watch of Jesus Christ, the judge. The judge. He is to be a faithful soldier of Christ Jesus, the Savior and the Lord. And the Lord wants his word preached or heralded until Christ sets up his kingdom in full. Until Christ sets up his kingdom in full. You hear this kingdom language everywhere in verse 1, right? Christ Jesus, who is the judge, to, is to judge the living and the dead. The phrase itself is linked to the resurrected and returning king who will one day return. Thus you get the appearing language. He's one, one day he's going to return again. He's going to appear and judge all mankind. Set up his kingdom, which is why there is the kingdom language there. That's all sort of in, that's all underneath or inside this language of appearing and kingdom. And Timothy there, the faithful soldier of Jesus Christ, is to seek to please him. Right? You look, that's exactly what Paul does, right? Look there in 4.8. Paul himself having preached the gospel, faithful in his ministry, says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In relation to this kingdom and the word, what's the relationship? Well, his kingdom grows as the word is preached, and as God calls his people to himself by that preached word. And so the kingdom of God is small now, but it is still growing at this very time. And then when Christ returns, he will set it up in full. Of course, that instrument there of the word of God that gathers people in according to his sovereign providence by the power of the Holy Spirit, by his design, is gathering people in, bringing people out, transferring people out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of his beloved son. By his plan, he set it up like that. Small now, growing, still growing, 
and at one point in time, he will come back and consummate his kingdom. What is Timothy to do? Of course he is to preach the word of God. Of course he is to herald the king's decree, because it is, as we know from Romans chapter 1, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The king himself, that is the Lord, has decreed forgiveness and reconciliation. Those things can be had in Christ Jesus the Lord who died on the cross for all who would repent of their sins and believe upon him. And so that is a call to everybody to repent and believe. Those visiting the church now, repent of your sin and believe and you will know this God in this salvation, this eternal life that he promises. This is what the king has decreed. This is what the king has done, and this is, in fact, his message. Preachers are those who are to go out in his name, speaking his message on his authority. This is what preachers are to do, thinking about, you know, checking out the church, thinking about what else should my pastor be doing. Preachers are those who go out in his name, speaking his message on his authority. So we got some examples here. If you look over in the book of Luke, this is after the cross and the resurrection. Jesus already died on the cross for sins. He got up from the dead. Of course, he knows that he's going to set up the church by laying the foundation of the church of the apostles. What does he tell his disciples to do before the church has even begun? What has he told his apostles to do? Look there in Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke 24. This is after the cross and resurrection again. Jesus says, thus it is written. Of course, where is it written? It's written in the scriptures in the Old Testament. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. But he tells him this unique thing. He says, Behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. He's talking about the Spirit of Jesus right there. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see the task there, right? They're supposed to testify to the ends of the earth, that forgiveness of sins is to be had for those who repent of their sins and believe. Then go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Of course, the disciples are still there. They're waiting in the city faithfully, just as Jesus said. Before Christ ascends into heaven, you see here in uh, 1.7, he tells them, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority in terms of setting up the kingdom. But, here's the deal, guys. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Of course, what are they to witness? And what does the whole book of Acts show, right? They're witnessing to the gospel, to what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection and in his spirit. They go around heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only are they to herald to those outside, they're also supposed to herald to those inside the church. They're also supposed to herald to those inside the church. So if you want to, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Um, and he tells Timothy, let me turn there. He says there in 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is preaching, or and then to teaching. 
Devote yourselves to these things in the public gathering of the church. That's the setting in which he's talking to Timothy there. There's other passages, right? Romans 16, 25, the preaching is, the heralding is to strengthen Christians. Preaching is to strengthen Christians. God's people are to feed on God's word as his word is heralded, just as they always had. Whether it was done at the beginning when God was forming his people in the Old Testament, right? When all of Israel gathers in the Exodus, they gather at Mount Sinai and they read aloud the word of God. Presumably they are told and they are explained about the word of God as to its meaning. Another great example, turn over to Nehemiah. If you're using the Pew Bible, go to page 403. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a fantastic example here of preaching expositing, explaining the word of God for God's people so that they would love Jesus or love God. This year, the, the context of this verse here is that the people are, they were under exile and then they are freed. They basically, basically the one who was over them says, you guys go ahead and go back to your place, set up your temple, set up your city. And this is, this is a great time. And you see what is foundational here in the reforming of God's people. You look there at eight one, right? And all the Nehemiah chapter eight, Nehemiah chapter eight. Remember, this is a great time, right? Even though people are still struggling with sin, what do they do here? They're they're being reformed by the grace of God and His sovereign providence. Eight one, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So what does what does the prophet Israel do? Or what does the prophet Ezra do? So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, that is the gathering, Israel's gathering together, both men and women and all who can understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. What's going on here? The people gather together, their hands are lifted up. If you look there, um, you look there, verse 4, verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform, like I am now. He's standing on a wooden platform that he had made for the purpose. And beside him stood other stood the Levites. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Got all these other Levites. They helped the people. Look there, the end, the, the end of seven. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places, just like you guys are now, remaining in your places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And get this, and they gave the sense, not just the reading, but the explanation. So that, so that the people understood the reading. They understood the word of God. That's an Old Testament example. And of course you have Jesus, the wonderful example, Jesus, Luke chapter 4, he goes into the temple. What does he do? He opens the word of God, Isaiah, and he explains how Isaiah is fulfilled in him. So we today, preachers, are to similarly open God's word, show how it points to Jesus Christ, explaining its meaning so that you get the sense of it and you understand the reading of it. It is, after all, God's chosen instrument to bring life to the dead. That's why we read it. That's why we preach it. James 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his cre- creatures. So, so thinking back, okay, practical application. So thinking back to 
this idea of not talking about the truth that's hard to swallow? How in the world can any pastor or preacher cover over any part of God's decree? How can you just, how can we stand here and say, thus, thus saith the word of the Lord? Not this stuff. We'll leave that stuff later. We're going to talk about that stuff afterwards. No, instead we're supposed to just open it and teach it. If God has really given us his word, and if we are supposed to speak it and herald it so that others come to salvation, what are the implications then of the church, the pastors, the person who modifies it? How, how could we modify it as if we know better than God? How can we modify it as if we are wiser than God regarding what will bring others to repentance and faith? Not only that, though, but on what authority do we have to delete portions of the king's decree? We don't have any authority to either subtract from the word of God or to add to the word of God as if he has says too little. Or as if he had said too much. Scripture is sufficient, which is why Timothy is to preach it. Of course, I'm not talking about being tactful. Of course, we want to be tactful. Of course, we want to explain things carefully. Of course, we don't want to confuse people. But we're supposed to just set it forth. Giving the sense and its meaning. If we aren't preaching the gospel, what exactly are we winning hearers to? You ever hear the common saying, what you win them with is what you win them to? It is so true. No wonder Christ wants his word preached because he wants people to be one to himself. That's why his churches and his preachers are to preach his word. This is why First Baptist here gives ourselves, once again, to preaching the word of God. We spoke about expositional preaching. We also want to do this type of preaching. We're just going to make sure the main point of the passage, the main point of the sermon. We want to do this from the Old Testament and New Testament and in different genres. So, you know, sometimes we'll preach from the law. So Genesis, right? We preach the Genesis. And then after that, maybe we go back to, we go to a gospel, a gospel narrative. And then maybe we dip ourselves back into the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And then maybe we go back to the New Testament and preach something from Paul's letters. And then maybe we go, maybe we go back to, let's say, Proverbs or the book of Psalms and talk about the writings. Preach those things. And then maybe we go, we'll go back to another letter in the New Testament, but not from Paul, but this time from, from someone like, Peter or someone like James or the book of Hebrews and on and on and on as we seek to expose the congregation to all of God's word. All of it is sufficient for life and doctrine. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 not only the pleasant things but also the things that are hard to hear, things that expose our sin. That's actually just exactly what the word is to do and what the preacher is to do as he wields the word. You see there in verse 2, what is Timothy to do? He's prove that is exposed sin. How do you do that apart from preaching about sin? He's supposed to rebuke. Right? So not only is he to expose, he's also supposed to tell people to stop sinning. Again, how do we do that? Apart from telling people to stop sinning. He's also to exhort. He's supposed to urge God's truth. It's sort of like a summary term. Urge God's truth upon his hearers. And encourage and call them to respond. And all of that, do all of that with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience and teaching. Christian, is this your personal expectation for me and the elders? Do you give us the freedom to open doors into your life from the pulpit? Of course, not using personal examples. 
but to talk about sin that rebukes sin that we are to reprove actions that we are to rebuke. Do you give us permission in your mind and in your heart, members of First Baptist Church, to do these things for you, for your own benefit? Let me encourage you to make it your expectation and desire that we would, in fact, be able to do these things according to God's word, because it is according to his design. Right? I know that a lot of you guys in your field, right? you give those expectations, you give your bosses freedom because you think that they have your best interest in mind. They know that you think that they want you to advance in your field, to become experts in your field. So you say, yeah, rebuke me, reprove me, tell me what I need to do. And if you allow doctors of the soul, preachers, Christians to do the same, it is this kind of teaching and preaching that keeps Christians on the path, after all, going from here to there. As we wait for Jesus to return. This brings us to reason number two. <clears throat> reason number one was the Lord wants his word preached. Reason number two. Preaching the word helps keep God's people on the path. Preaching the word. Obviously doing these things. Reproving, rebuking, exhorting. With complete patience and teaching. We'll talk about patience in a moment. <clears throat> doing those things help he keeps Christians on the path. It prepares us for righteousness. Remember it equips us, makes us complete. For how we are to live our lives now. Paul knows this, and so he wants all Christians to be prepared, equipped for every good work. He says there, preach the word. He says all those things, and he talks about, you know, get the patience. Here's the reason for patience. In the text specifically, verses 3 and 4, 4, the reason is, why with all patience? Why with all teaching? For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see his logic there. It's preach the word given what will happen and is already happening. We know that there were certain people who were given to sort of always learning and never arriving at the truth of the gospel. Always with their itching ears wanting to learn more and more and more as if God didn't already reveal. So he says preach the word given everything that's already happening. He speaks in the future tense, reminding him that he lives in these last days, awaiting for Jesus to return. Let me explain how preaching helps Christian on the path. Note, preaching helps save those who wander. Preaching helps save those who wander. You look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 and notice that some who call themselves Christians and what they will do. They do three things. They will not endure sound teaching. This all assumes that they were at one point in time enduring sound teaching. They come from the church. Remember, we talked about this a lot. They, though, will not endure sound teaching. They will not put up with it. They won't have it. And so what do they do? They will, second, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. Not only that, though, but then they turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off into myths. That is, things untrue. A little bit clearer in First Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. There, these are probably myths that are based on Old Testament genealogy. It's simply not true. And so, in summary, they say no to biblical teaching and then yes to teaching that suits their own agenda and passions, almost to soothe their itching ears. While this was going on, so while this was going on then, so Quentin realized that it might be going on here. We still live in these last days. Christ has come. We live for Christ second coming. This means that maybe some of you 
our passions are creating this itch in your ears that needs to be scratched like an addict craving dope. And so you realize that some of us might be tempted to plug our ears to what God says, what the preacher says as well, so far as it aligns with Scripture, in order to accumulate, gather around for themselves something more appropriate, a lifestyle we might really want to live according to Scripture. Something more suitable for the things that we desire to do in our passions. Isn't that fascinating? You know, we all understand, right, our stomachs, right, they long to be satisfied, so we feed them with food through our mouth. Here, what longs to be satisfied is our carnal desires that come out of the heart, and they call out, right, they long to be satisfied. And so some feed this with teaching and wisdom, some sort of preaching that at the end of the day is not biblical and against the will of God. It's like some of us might be tempted to feed this itch, this craving, not through the mouth as if we feed the hungry stomach, but through the ear, looking for someone to tell us what we, what you, what we want to hear. And so maybe some of us are tempted to not put up with biblical teaching on life and doctrine and instead turn to others for the so-called life wisdom, so-called belief. Now, friends, I'm guessing that you probably have no interest in Old Testament genealogies and, more importantly, the myths that these false teachers were talking about. But maybe what appeals to you are those who tell you to live a little according to your own will, even though the Christian lives to the will of God. Maybe what appeals to you is somebody, some friend, some teaching that really does call for you to carve out a little bit of freedom because your God is a tyrant. Christian, let me encourage you, if your closest friends or those who are you those who you are most intimate with are those who would love to see you live as a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, beware. Do they promise you the world while begging you to sin, enjoying your sin? All the while getting you to doubt God's goodness because God has better plans for you than you even know of in that sin. That's what they're saying. That's what they're pitching to you. Friend, let me encourage you. Beware. If so, friends, you realize that those friends, right? How do we how do we evaluate these people that we have accumulated for ourselves? If so, it is no understatement that those who live in that space of trying to get you to sin walk in the very footsteps of the devil. See Matthew chapter 4. Christian, if that is you, let me encourage you to not give in to sin. He has had enough victory, has he not? He has already done enough damage and brought down Adam and Eve, for example. He tells Eve to live a little bit, eat of the fruit. He promises her the world that she's going to be autonomous, just like God, doing, determining what is good and bad. And all the while, he doubts her to doubt God's narrowing her focus on the very thing she can't have. Even though God has already put her in a garden with everything that could satisfy. The devil has done enough damage, Christian. Not only in that, but now as we are all born into sin and choose to sin, 
You realize the damage he's done? We don't even need the devil to come to us individually. Sin has already got us craving the fall all over again, and so we think, so we say, so we feel. We don't want to endure God's word. Instead, we're going to accumulate for ourselves those who tell us what we want to hear. We accumulate for ourselves deceivers so that we might be deceived. Those who are suitable to our own wills. And we happily turn away to destruction. And you see that he has already had enough so-called victory. He's already had enough damage. Given this is part of the very nature of sin, not only should we be wary of others who are trying to convince us of sin, but we should be wary and watchful over ourselves. Wary and watchful over ourselves. Be wary and watchful over yourself about the biblical truths and commands that don't sit well with us. Those you don't like to hear about. What about God's will? Let me ask you a question. What about God's will for you you struggle to put up with? That You realize that that's where you're going to seek out new teachers. Of course, it doesn't have to be an actual teacher. It could be a friend. It could be a loved one. It could be some Instagram celebrity that lives the life you really want to live. So let me ask you, Christian, where do you get frustrated underneath God and his rule? Where do you get frustrated underneath God and his rule? Since Paul talks about pleasure in chapter 3, let's talk about pleasure. Do you not like that God does not want you doing whatever you want to do? To your own body, to yourself, to other people. For example, you do not like that God does not want you sleeping with whoever you want to. Whoever you feel like sleeping with, lusting after, whoever you feel like lusting after. And maybe you, God, is this stingy God who makes these tyrannical demands of you as if he just wants his minions doing his bidding but doesn't really care about us. Brother and sister, if that's you, that you know that that is so far from the truth. Here's how we know. He is the very one who designed you with the capacity of deep relational intimacy. But here's the deal. Though you are, or here's the deal, you are meant to be satisfied first and foremost in Him. Those relational capacities have been given to you so that you would be intimate with the Father as He has designed you to be. Listen to the 4th century church father Augustine's a marvelous quote, which I've used previously. Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, relational capacity, intimacy, love. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. You realize that God himself is the one who made you to be this way. And the physical intimacy that he has designed you for, he has designed to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman. Two people who have the same end, the same goal, the same mission, depending on the same spirit, seeking to please the one king who is judge and is going to return to set up his kingdom. Two people who are faithful, encouraging one another to live for Jesus Christ. That's one way. You know, here's another way. The gospel. That's how we know God loves us. Even though we, once again, had rebelled against him, he nevertheless has loved us Though we sin, he nevertheless has loved us so much, Christian, that he has sent Jesus all in pursuit of you. In an amazing act of love and self-sacrifice, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, bearing the sin and the wrath that you rightly deserve, so you would know him no longer in fear as judge, 
but know him as God the Father. Adopted into his family, an heir of his eternal kingdom. And according to his righteousness, we're going to talk about this more next time, but strangely, according to his righteousness, gives us the crown of righteousness, not on account of us, but all on account of his good grace. Now, may he not want you to do something or have that thing right here, right now, according to your grand agenda. But friend, that does not mean that he does not love you. That does not mean that he has somehow abandoned you. I mean, just think about if we were all children talking to other children, right? What kind of friends would we be if we stirred up such distrust and doubt in our friends against their parents because their children chose not to buy them everything they wanted when they wanted it? Friends, let me encourage you, don't define God's love to you based on him not fulfilling certain desires that you have. You want to know how God loves you? You want to know how God loves you? 1 John 3.16 says this, absolutely clear. By this, this thing we know love. That Jesus laid down his life for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind, look, behold, look, what kind of love the Father has given to us, lavished upon us dumped out upon us that we should be called children of God. I get, friend, that you might feel temptation to judge God to be stingy. And maybe you're wrestling that one particular thing. You're trying to wrestle that one particular thing away from God. But have you ever considered, have you ever considered that you might be the stingy one? Happy to live under God's will when it comes to eternal salvation at the cost of the blood of Jesus, happy to take forgiveness and pardon of sin, happy to be adopted into his family, made an heir of his eternal kingdom, with eternal riches of Jesus, into eternity, but not happy to trust him when it comes to this thing, your body, your relationships, your finances, your pleasure. Friends, if that's you, let me encourage you to remember that God is good and he loves you. Beware of those who tell you otherwise and contradict the word of God. If you find yourself not putting up with sound doctrine, if you find yourself not putting up with a living that accords with sound doctrine, let me encourage you to talk to a pastor. Talk to another church member that you trust and one that you know loves you. I'm absolutely confident that God and his ways are better. They are better than whatever sin you think promises you better. There's plenty of sinners in the Bible and right here who know this to be true. Let me encourage you to talk to a Christian, a mature Christian, someone you trust, a pastor, as we are committed here to helping you understand not only what God desires of us, that is what we are to do and not do, but why he desires it in the first place and why living under his rule is good because he is good. Thinking back to the supposed victory that Satan has had, all the damage he has done according to his word and then sin. No wonder preaching is so effective. It is God's word who destroys the devil. It is God's word who nullifies all words of temptation that come from the deceiver. And so here, Paul encouraging Timothy is to preach the word. Rescue people, save people, snatch people, help them continue. Walking in the faith. Second way, preaching not only helps save those who are tempted to wander, preaching also helps Timothy remain faithful to the Lord. Preaching also helps Timothy, the pastor, remain faithful to the Lord. First, talking about everybody, save Christians, right? 
encourage Christians, snatch them out of sin. It also encourages and say uh, encourages Timothy to remain faithful, the pastor. I understand this. It's a huge reason for me to preach, once again, expositional sermons. You realize, friends, that preachers are not above these temptations. I'm not sure of any ear itch that I have. I'm not aware of any ear itch that I have, but I'm certainly not above any temptation. I assume my passions and desires, the, the inherent sin that I wrestle with, with being depraved, original sin, it still operates in a destructive but undetectable way, oftentimes. Therefore, I need this external thing to govern me. I need this external thing to govern me, an outside source, that is the word of God. And when I, when we as a church are governed by the word, we will be governed by his will. What a benefit of expositional preaching, right? Can't create topics from my head and then go search for passages in scripture all the time for the main diet of the church. Well, instead, we're going to make God's word the main diet of the church. It tells me what I am to preach, making the main point of the passage the main point of the sermon. And if Timothy himself is ruled by the word of God, then he will be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. One who lives his entire life for Christ being, look there in verse 5, sober-minded, despite all those who continually learn but never arrive at the truth. He is to be sober-minded, clear-headed, sober in the mind, according to the truth. He's also supposed to live his life for Jesus Christ by enduring suffering in the face of false teaching. He suffers for Christ and his gospel, which we've talked plenty about in this letter. And then the grand summary there. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. The final command there, final imperative that Timothy, that Paul gives Timothy in relation to his public ministry. And so far as I remember, I'm pretty sure that's accurate there. These are the last words of Paul to his son in faith given to Timothy in word and example concerning his public ministry. And what better model to have than Paul, the, his father in the faith. You look there at verses 6 to 8. Another way in which he encourages Timothy here. We're going to talk about this in an entire sermon, but I'll go ahead and read it now. It's pertinent. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, who is coming back, who is going to appear, who is going to set up his kingdom once and for all, who has charged Timothy, who has handed over the gospel to his church, that Timothy now would go on and preach it and rightly handle it, that Lord, that righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only Paul, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance, including Timothy, including pastors. So to recap, what is, what is the pastor's primary task? It is to preach the word of God. Why is it? The Lord wants his word preached. And the Lord's word helps save his people. To conclude here, God's word is sufficient not only for Timothy, but for the church. With a pastor charged to preach the word, we are called to be governed by the word, governed by his will, as we fulfill our ministry that God has given us as a church and as individual members. As we, as he gathered us together, we are to display his glory to the watching world as we continue to believe upon him, 
feeding on his word. It is the only way that Christ's people go from this life to the next. Just as Christ has saved us and formed us together as a church, just as he secured us eternal life in Jesus Christ, so that we might know it now and then know it full in the future, so he has given us his word that makes us wise for salvation and equips his people right here and right now for every good work to know how to step in this life as we go from this one to the next. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we, indeed we thank you for your word. And we have seen here already how you and your grace have given us your word that your people would continue on the path. We thank you too that it is clear from this letter, which we have already talked about, that your word as well rebukes those. And even to false teachers or those who don't believe could lead to a knowledge of the truth. And so that others would come to believe on Jesus Christ and repent of, this, of their sins. We thank you too. Not only does your word encourage and save Christians. Not only does it rebuke false teachers. Showing them the way of salvation. It also encourages faithfulness to your people. Or faithfulness to you in your people. God, we pray that you would indeed make us faithful to your word. That, Lord, we would be able to see when we are tempted to accumulate false teachers to feed our carnality and then instead go to the word of God, which is truth, which delivers, which rescues, which causes us to be born again by your spirit, which helps us see you for who you are and helps us love you. Lord, we pray that we would be like those who receive letters from their loved ones, like those who so cherish those types of letters and revisit them read them often, remembering, envisioning, seeking to please. Lord, we pray that we would do the same with your word. We thank you, Lord, that it guides us, lights up, it leads us, lights our path, shows us the way to go, and shows us how we are to live for you. Work your word in our congregation, we pray, and in our hearts by the power of your spirit. Bring us to repentance of faith. Expose us, we pray according to your word preached and word ministered in individual relationships, Lord, we pray that we would indeed also reprove, that we would seek to correct and call people to repent of their sins. Lord, we pray to you that according to your word, you would help us fix our eyes on you, the returning king. We pray, Lord, that like good soldiers, we would seek to please the one who enlisted us, who saved us and called us into the ministry. We thank you, Lord, for your example. In the desert, when you were tempted by the devil, and you clung to the word of God. Help us see and be mindful of its power. May we always know that it is working amongst us even now. Give us ears to be attentive to it. So that we might hear it and do it. All by the grace of God. In your name we pray. Amen.